Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me together again after two weeks apart. How are you, Lucy? <laughs> I'm all right. I'm very happy to be here. How are you? I'm very happy to have you. Uh, I'm fine, thank you. Um, am I allowed to ask you what you did or read or watched specifically with your week off? Uh, yes, you're allowed. You're allowed to ask. <laughs> <laughs> Will you answer? <laughs> I can tell you that I have been reading about mushrooms oh. and mycelium and all that. So I'm reading it very late, the book by um, Merlin Sheldrake. Yeah. yeah, everybody else read it um, last year and I'm reading it this year. And it's it's totally fascinating. It turns out that fungi are basically... Are basically in charge. Mm. There's, there's a, I mean, there's lots of eye-opening stories. Um, there's a zombie fungus that makes ants do what it wants and then grows out of their heads. But that makes them all sound malevolent. <laughs> it's not, they're not malevolent. Well, those ones are if you're an ant. But, um, but it's incredibly benevolent and have, have cr- sort of created the conditions for life and continue yeah. to do so. They're basically running things. They, they, they really kind of are. Uh, and they seem to be pretty good at it. As long if if we wouldn't just keeping, you know, we keep putting our, our big feet into things and messing it up. But if we just let, <laughs> if we let the fungi run things, it it'd go much better, I think. How about you? Do you know I've enjoyed two things a lot in the space of seven days. That's which good. Seems like a pretty pretty good pretty good <laughs> innings to me. Um, also a year late. Um, so I read Deborah Levy's Real Estate. It's the third and final installment of um, you know her living autobiography which is more or less what it sounds like an autobiography sort of written in real time yeah tracing thoughts and impressions and and events and feelings um yeah so it came out last year but I just got the paperback um and I just think she's the perfect company um clever funny sharp-eyed that's high praise bullshit averse just really really enjoyed it Sharp-eyed bullshit averse. Sharp-eyed and bullshit averse. <laughs> oh, averse. Sorry, I thought you were saying like a universe. <laughs> no. Right, I'm sorry. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, I'm I'm with you now. Um, and the uh, the other thing is a film, uh, which was also out last year, I think. So this <laughs> is just mm. a, a year's lag always. Um, terribly up to date. I know. It's just finger on the pulse. Um, but it's called The Humans. Have you heard about it? It's um, directed by Stephen Caram. It was adapted from a play. Is it People Round a Table? Yes, it's exactly Yes, yeah, so I that. have heard about it, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. It's It's got Beanie Feldstein in, who's pretty wonderful. Exactly, yes, really wonderful. And, um, yeah, you know, I looked it up before I watched it, and I think its uh, public review rating was one out of ten or one out of five, and I just thought, oh. well, that's probably the film <laughs> for me, and I was right. <laughs> so I guess it's um, it's a dark comedy centred on, yeah, as you say, it's, well, it's a Catholic-American family. They're rather tense Thanksgiving meal in this creepy apartment um, that, uh, in, in New York's Chinatown. Um, and it's just brilliantly scripted. Um, nothing really happens. I was going to say, is it horror? Because I can't really watch it if it's horror. No, no, it's not. It's quite Pinterest. It's, it's, there's an, an unsettling, very unsettling undercurrent. Nothing, but nothing, really nothing happens, mm. except, you know, in in the best things where nothing happens, Ooh. everything changes somehow mm-hmm. anyway. So yeah, I won't, I won't say any more, but, okay. um, but I really, really recommend it. Well, this is the place to come to if you want to hear about things a year, <laughs> a year late. they came out. This is where you did not hear it first. That's our, that's our unique selling point. 
Right, well, um, moving swiftly on, uh, coming up on this week's show, On Time. (laughs) As a run of the modernist and satirical novelist Sylvia Townsend Warner's work is reissued in Penguin's modern classic series, Janet Montefiore joins us to consider her life and work, as well as that of the poet Valentine Ackland, Warner's partner forever in her shadow. But first, Lucy, over to you. We're going to take wing and consider birds, the beings who have, as our reviewer says, populated our minds and dreams and got endangerment from us in return. Jeremy Minot is the author of Birdscapes and Birds in the Ancient World and has forgotten more than most of us ever knew about birds. He's reviewing three big new books on the cultural history of birds and we're delighted that he can join us today. We have 12,000 years of bird watching to talk about so we better get started. Jeremy hello and many thanks for joining us. Well hello and thank you for letting me join the conversation. Well, you open your piece um, with a question, which I'm actually just sort of going to put back to you. The question is, what accounts for the extraordinary importance birds have had throughout history in our lives, affections and imaginations? Can you give us some of the, the reasons as you see them? Yes, well, one of the reasons certainly is just that they're physically ubiquitous throughout the world. They're quite pervasive. Um, they span the globe from pole to pole. They're present in every um, realm of land, sea and air, and probably most people see or hear a bird every day of their lives. So physically, they're just with us the whole time. But also, and more importantly, probably, they form many different roles in our lives. Over history, we've hunted them, we've eaten them, we've adorned ourselves with their feathers, we've used their body parts for medicine, um, we've trained them for various kinds of sports and entertainment, We've made friends of them in our gardens. Um, we've got a whole range of different relationships with them. And I think one reason why we're so attracted to them is that they just have this gift of flight. I think that's terribly important. They have a kind of freedom that we aspire to. Um, and um, we're also attracted, of course, to their physical beauty and to their song. But I think flight is one of the most important things, along with the fact that when we watch birds, we think we know what they're up to. Um, we can see parallels between their social worlds and our social worlds. We see them eating, quarrelling, mating, singing, conversing, attacking each other and so on. And we, we, we think we can enter into their society in some kind of way. So we do have a special sort of empathy with birds, I believe. Can I ask you, Jeremy, about about your own fascination with birds? I mean, when when you speak to bird lovers, bird, bird lovers, they they tend to describe their relationship with birds as having come about in in childhood. I think perhaps precisely because of that envy of flight. I certainly remember wanting to be a bird. <laughs> um, is is that the same for you, or did you did you turn to them later in life? No, I I was interested from a very early age, and um, in fact, I've still got a copy of my first bird book. Um, which is a scruffy little thing now, of course, and it was the way I was lured to go to school. I was promised that I could um, show the teacher some pictures from my bird book, and that's how they seduced me and took me to school. (laughs) And um, my poor mother had to read me um, accounts from this bird book every night until I think she usually fell fell to sleep before I did. Um, (laughs) It was basically a list of species with characteristics of their behaviour and appearance and so on. But I 
by the age of about six, I'd almost memorized it by heart. And of course, in those days, um, children were more free to wander than they perhaps are now. And I was quite a feral child. I, we were lucky enough to live in the countryside and I just went out for walks. I, no one asked me where I was going or when I might come back, but usually I came back when mealtime called. Um, and I was lucky enough just to be able to explore the world for myself. And part of exploring the world was to very much acquaint myself with birds. Mm. And very early on, I was lucky that my brother, an elder brother, had this interest too. And the the best present he ever gave me was to teach me bird song at an early age. So again, by the age of about 10, I guess, I knew the songs and calls of nearly all the common British birds. And that's always been a very important link with birds for me. Um, mm. Not just admiring the songs, but being able to recognise them, and they then become a part of the places that you're exploring. So I think sound and song is quite mm. an important dimension too. And a way of kind of keeping track of time passing and seasons, although I imagine they're slightly more confused now than, than they were once. Yes, the, the seasonal behaviour of birds is terribly important, I think. Um, and of course, in um, earlier societies, it was very important indeed, because they used birds as calendars to some extent uh, the farming season was dictated by the arrival and departure of certain birds and there are all kinds of lovely quotes from um, classical writers like Homer and Hesiod um, um, illustrating that um, and even today people are terribly aware I think of the seasonality of birds I mean cuckoos unfortunately are now quite rare in Britain as you probably know um, the numbers arriving here from Africa are very much diminished from what they were some years ago. But in about the middle of April, actually usually about April the 15th, people in the village where I live now, they stop me in the street and they say, Jeremy, have you heard the cuckoo yet? <laughs> they don't say, have you heard what Boris Johnson has just said? <laughs> or have you heard that Russia has been invading Ukraine? They say, no, have you heard the cuckoo yet? It's still important to people. Yeah. And um, the, the swallow is another marker mm. of that kind. We, we, we mark the beginning of summer by the arrival of the swallow. And um, I'm certainly very sensitive to these things, like most um, birders and bird watchers. And um, uh, on certain days every month in March and April, I go out listening for or looking for certain birds as key markers of the, uh, uh, of the progress of the seasons. Mm. We asked you to read all these these uh, these three books that all came out in the same year on the uh, the history or the cultural history of birds. So they're by Richard Pope, Borea Sachs, and Tim Burkhead. Um, and you you say that there are sort of three approaches that you can take when writing this sort of book. Can you can you outline those three approaches for us briefly? Yes, um, I mean they're all remarkable books. These and um, the authors of all of them have. Have, have thought very deeply about birds, uh, but it's interesting that they handle the subject in rather different ways. And I mean, just as a rather crude typology, I suggest that there are three ways you can you can you can cut the material up. Either you can do it species by species, so you know something about the swallow, something about the cuckoo, um, and and so on, or you can do it by themes, um, taking birds as entertainment, birds hunting of birds, birds in science, what we've learned. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details about birds over history um you can you can choose various themes and cut it up that way birds in medicine birds in food um, birds in farming or you can do it in a straight chronological way starting with the prehistoric period um, and um, tim burkhead begins his book with the um the, with the neolithic and tracing it through to the present day so those are three ways of tackling it but in fact None of them is a very pure way because they each find themselves hybridising what they do to some extent. Mm. It sounds as though, from what you say, Richard Pope's book, um, it has a kind of narrative arc. Is that right? Yes, it does. He takes um, he takes a strong moral or you might say spiritual line. Um, his book traces what he sees as a, a terrible decline in our relationships with birds. He thinks that, um, he argues that in the prehistoric period, um, and he goes back to the Paleolithic even earlier than the others, um, we had a kind of affinity or closeness with birds and indeed with the rest of nature because we were part of nature. And he thinks that in that period, we had a reverence for birds in particular that amounted to a kind of religious awe of them. And he traces history following that as a, a series of setbacks and declines as human beings separated themselves more from nature and learned how to exploit it and eventually to destroy it, which is what, of course, what we're doing now. So he takes a strong moral line and um, he sees the stage we've reached now as a really dire point in human history where a large part of the um, natural world has been destroyed through human agency. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you about this because um, it, it, he's talking about something. We've been talking about it on, on the podcast quite recently. We had a piece about, about um, in inverted commas, nature writing, and lots of people now who, who write about, about the environment or animals or any of this don't, don't like that term anymore for precisely the reason you've said, because it's as though nature is over there and you know we can kind of look at it or be interested or do whatever we want and we're over here because we're not part of it precisely and so there's a change in um a, perhaps a, a change in our attitude towards it but but the the other side of that is that this change is coming rather late do do you kind of agree with that yes uh, nature writing's difficult as you say um as a concept 
lots of people who write about nature are rather hesitant to call themselves nature writers because it has a mm. sense of nostalgia or um, rather soft romanticism about it. Um, indeed, the authors of the three books we're talking about now are not in writing those books being nature writers. They're writing about birds and about nature, but they wouldn't be nature writers in the sense that, um, say, Gilbert Wright was a nature writer. Mm. Um, and as you say, all three all three books, I think, talk about uh, about the threats to the survival of birds brought about by humans in the form of climate crisis. Yes, they, they all end up by talking about that and um, um, in somewhat different tones of voice and through rather different journeys to reach that point. But they're certainly all agreed on that point and the facts are quite undeniable. Um, I mean, in Britain alone, um, if I've got the figures in my mind right, we've lost about 40 million pairs of breeding birds over the last 50 years. And some of the most iconic birds like skylarks, cuckoos, and most particularly the turtle dove, have had declines of over 90% in that period. Um, in a worldwide basis, it's now estimated that um, something like one in eight birds is one, one in eight bird species is threatened with extinction. So the scale of the devastation is extraordinary. And although in the popular press, this is often connected with climate change. Um, it's not really a story about climate change as such, because most of these losses have been caused not by climate change, but by human intervention, by destruction of habitat, by intensive farming, by urbanization and certain kinds of development and pollution. So although climate change is going to deliver the coup de grace to everything, it's not climate change that has so far destroyed birds, it's other human factors. Right. Okay. That's well. Yes. I mean, we knew it already, but there's a, 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 a sobering thought. Boria Sachs's book um, sounds a bit different in its approach, in that it sounds quite literary. Is that is that right? Yes, that's correct. It's very literary, and he has the most extraordinary range of reference. Um, he um, quotes from um, he quotes in English, but from a number of um, sources in other languages including um, some Eastern uh, references too, um, whereas most of the other books are Western in their, in, in their focus. Um, and he deploys his literature um, very sensitively and very effectively too. Um, he quotes a great deal from poetry and he quotes a lot from poets that you might expect him to quote from, Keats, um, Yeats, um, Hardy, um, Shelley, of course, Wordsworth, but he also quotes from a lot of um, uh, poets and um, literary sources that I'd scarcely heard of, including one or two um, Chinese sources. So that gives an extra dimension of interest to his book. And he does it very sensitively. And the reason I think why he quotes so much from literature is that his main theme is the loss of empathy with birds um, mm. for for. For Sachs, um, who sounds like a very interesting figure, um, we have a special kind of empathy with birds such that an encounter with birds seems like a rather special occasion, even if we can't quite give an account of it. It seems like a special, a special encounter um, with, with spiritual dimensions to it. Um, and that really is the theme of his book. He goes so far as to say that if we lost our connections with birds, 
we would lose civilization itself. And that's his big theme. And it's, it's a very dramatic and striking one. But as you work through the book, you see um, how he progresses towards it. Do they suggest ways in a small way of helping, you know, from the very practical of putting out feeders regularly? Or do, do they do they do they think of, of, of things that people can do or are they are they just kind of laying it out? More the latter, actually. They know it's not a practical um, manual of what we can do in small ways of that sort, but um, um, they do um, engage with the large political questions that we have to deal with, which will have an effect on both the abundance and the biodiversity of birds in the world. And um, they are, are all engaged with those themes. And indeed, they all mention, as I say, um, the, the huge threat of climate crisis, which will change our relationships with the natural world a great deal in the end. Um, but no, they're not a practical, they're not practical handbooks. No, I was just wondering, I'm actually slightly hoping for them, you know, because as you say, they're all, they're sort of tending in one direction. Um, Tim Burkins is a bit different though, isn't it? You say, as, as you say, it's, it's more traditional, starts with the, the Neolithic freeze, which he calls the, the birthplace of bird study and then kind of moves on in a great sweep, does it? Yes, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful narrative. Um, and the distinctive thing about Burke's book is that he's a scientist, which the other two are not. A, a very powerful thread in his book is the way that science has in stages um, taught us more about birds, bird behavior, and how we interact with birds and the effects that humans have on birds. So it's a, seri- it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a history of ornithology as well as of our relations with birds. And um, he's got a great gift for um, for popular exposition. And uh, he's published a number of very successful books that um, exhibit this. And this is the one in which he does it on the largest possible scale, um, a huge history from the beginning to the end, as it were. Um, um, and um, it's, it's a most impressive sweep and a most impressive story, but it's threaded through with the science of birds. And one one very engaging thing is that in each chapter, he shows how um, the relationships people have had with birds and their understanding of birds throw up certain puzzles, which science can now solve. Um, so it's a it's a sort of scientific detective story as well as everything else. I mean, it is that wonderful thing of of he's still very much an enthusiast, isn't he? I was having a look again at his book Bird Sense, which mm-hmm. is uh, quite a few years old now, but was just is just trying to look at the world, well, to, or to see the world, or to smell, or you know, hear the world as a bird would, which is obviously impossible. But um, it's 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 really fascinating. And as you say, it gives you the it gives you the hard science behind it. And actually, the surprising thing is that a lot of the time there isn't that much science behind it because nobody's asked the question. Yeah, that's very that's very true. I mean, Bird Sense is a wonderful book. Another wonderful one is the the, the book he wrote more recently on bird eggs. Um, mm-hmm. um, I, I can't quite remember the exact title. It's something like the most wonderful thing: the inside and outside of an egg. Mm. Um, but he um, that's another very good book. He wrote another book which is more historical in character, called The Wisdom of Birds, which was based on the discoveries of, uh, the ninth, uh, of the 17th century figures, Francis Willoughby and John Ray, who were pioneers in what he thinks of as modern ornithology. But at every turn, he tells these stories with a scientific twist, which um, for anyone with the sort of curiosity that I have, is, is a wonderful way of introducing them. 
just to um, close that loop, it was the the most perfect thing, just so that everyone can uh, can can find it. <laughs> ah, thank you. The egg is the most perfect thing. <laughs> and as you say, all three books, they obviously have very different illustrations throughout because they have a whole world of, of actual birds and bird imagery to choose from. But in fact, all three, and it, it, we chose a bit of this for our illustration of, of your wonderful piece as well. So they, uh, they show one particular Egyptian tomb painting. Can you tell us a bit about that? <laughs> yes, it's um, it's a, quite a famous painting. It's in the British Museum, and it's an Egyptian wall painting of a man called Nebamun, who is displayed hunting in the marshes, accompanied by his wife, who is um, um, very fashionably dressed, but unsuitable, <laughs> unsuitably for that particular um, expedition, I would think, and his cat, who is also hunting with him. And um, it's full of colour and life and vitality and abundance. And um, I'm sure what it actually um, what it actually is meant to convey is the abundance of life in this world and the life that um, never whom hopes to enjoy in the next world. Um, mm. And each of them refer to it, but in rather different ways. And one of the nice things about Tim Burkhead's references that he actually identifies all the birds in the picture, which I've not seen anybody else do before. It's amazing because there's lots and lots of birds in the picture as well. Yes, there are. Um, so he tells, he goes through each one and says this, says what they are. Yes, in particular though, I was I was amused that he spotted um, a very unusual bird amongst them, which is an African bird called an African finfoot. And I don't. I suspect that neither of the other two authors would have spotted that bird. <laughs> and one one of the other authors homes in on the uh, on the cat instead, doesn't he? That's right. Um, Richard Pope um, has a lot to say about cats because cats are, um, have a very destructive effect on the number of wild birds. Um, mm. I forget quite what the figures are, but I think they are thought to kill um, several million wild birds in Britain alone, and. Um, Pope has a, something of a tirade about um, cats on the loose, as well as he does about other forms of um, human-related activity, um, human pets and human sports that uh, impact badly on on, on birds. And mm. um, he focuses on the cat in the picture, um, which is also hunting birds. A bell, you would have thought. I mean, that's not not Neba Moon wouldn't have wanted a bell on his cat, but I suppose the rest of us could 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 use a bell. <laughs> That might be one small thing to do that might help. Jeremy Minot, thank you so much for talking to us today. Still to come on the show, Sylvia Townsend Warner finally starts to get the attention she deserves and there's room for her partner, the poet Valentine Ackland too. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi. Now, Sylvia Townsend Warner. Many of you will know the name and some of you will have read her first and probably still best known novel, Lolly Willows, 1926's witty satire of gender expectations and the escape offered to one woman by witchcraft. But knowledge of the rest of her work is probably a bit sketchy. She is, paradoxically, says our writer Janet Montefiore, comparing her to Virginia Woolf, Stevie Smith and Elizabeth Bowen, the only major British woman writer of her period not admitted to the canon of accepted classics. News of Warner's genius somehow has yet to reach the general public, she says. A flurry of recent reissues may now change that, and Janet Montefiore is chair of the Sylvia Townsend Warner Society, so we could hardly ask for a better guide. She joins us now. Hello, Janet. Hello. You describe Sylvia Townsend Warner as being uh, like Cavafy at a slight angle to the universe. What do you mean by that? Well, partly, I mean, the obvious thing that she's always a bit unexpected. I also say that her writings are a continually disconcerting pleasure to read um, because they tend to sort of upset your expectations. Um, And I suppose it was also a coded way of saying she's gay, as Cavafy was. Uh, quite a quite a good way of summarising rather a lot, really. So, um, so when did you when did you first come to Sylvia Townsend Warner? When when did you discover her? In the autumn of um, nineteen eighty one, I was in Dylan's bookshop, as it then was, um, and they had copies of PN Review, which I used to read now and then. And there was something called Sylvia Townsend Warner: A Celebration, which had essays on her, and it had letters by her, the letters particularly, um, and the poems. And I picked it up and I read it and I thought, who is this amazing writer? Why don't I know about (laughs) it? And I started reading what was then in print, um, which wasn't very much really. There was Lolly Willows and Mr. Fortune's Maggot was published by Virago um, in 1978. There were a few novels, not very many. there were the poems edited by Claire Harmon, who was responsible for the mm. um, 
Sylvia Townsend Warner celebration. And otherwise I'd read things as they came out and reprinted. If you first encountered her in, in the letter form as well, I mean, she was a, we're not sadly going to have too much time to go into this um, because uh, none of the books that you cover are her correspondence, but she was a brilliant letter writer, wasn't she? She was a wonderful letter writer. Um, I was looking again at the thank you letter that she writes to Elise Gregory, saying usually a thank you letter begins with some graceless comparison, like I have never been given such a scarlet muffler, or this is the largest horse I've ever been sent for Christmas. <laughs> the letters are wonderful. For you to see her published now as part of uh, the Penguin Classics series must feel rather overdue, but I suppose it's interesting to think about why the canon might have been so slow to accept her. One of those reasons is surely, I mean, because she was very successful in her time, really, but surely it's something to do with the sheer variety of, of her. Well, that was part of it. I mean, she was tremendously successful with Lolly Willows. It was her one and only bestseller. Nothing else that she published after that um, was received with sort of quite the enthusiasm that Lolly Willows was. I think in the sort of in the mid-century, she was a kind of um, a steady seller, a sort of a stalwart of the backlists. And I mean, obviously it paid Chateau and Windus to go on publishing her, but I don't think they made a fortune by it. In fact, I'm sure they didn't. But it, it, it frustrates me. I mean, there are all these volumes of Virginia Woolf's letters. And they're, yeah, 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 they're terrific letters. But sort of Sylvia Townsend Warner's letters are terrific too. And um, there's no major edition of her. I know Lolly Willows was, as you say, was the bestseller and is the one everyone knows. And I'm ashamed to say it's the only one I've read. And I've read it quite recently. Um, but it still strikes me as... It certainly feels very fresh, and it and it and it's it's just it's a very odd, powerful, strange book, isn't it? I was just rereading the end. The end is extraordinary. It, yes, it is. Um, back in the nineteen nineties, a colleague who was teaching a course on the nineteen twenties said, "Could I think of something feminist in the nineteen twenties that wasn't a room of one's own?" And I thought, and I said, well, there's Bolly Rose. <laughs> and the sort of colleague read it, and he was very surprised. And he said, it begins like Jane Austen and ends up like Angela Carter, which makes it sound a bit imitative, which it's not. But I know exactly what he meant. Yes, absolutely. I was just reading just a bit right at the end. And she's talking about, um, I won't say who he is, but... Um, it, 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 she's just talking about his undesiring and unjudging gaze. It's a woman wanting to get away, to be left alone, you know, um, not bothered by any of those things, which still seems to me to be very sadly pertinent. Yes, uh, yes, I'm afraid that's true. Yeah. While we're on feminism, I want to say another thing about Warner, which also comes from one of her letters to her friend Paul Nodov. Nodov has a daughter um, and says that... Um, um, she wishes everything good for her daughter and hopes that she will be fearless. She said it, it, it's fear that make, makes women sort of sour and prying. And if she is fearless, then it's like a tree having a good root and everything, um, and everything good will grow about. And then she will be full of mercy and grace and generosity. Mm. Uh, I'm quoting from memory, but isn't that striking? It's, it's all back in the 1950s, as you know. Yeah, it's wonderful. And Lolly Willows is, is fearless. That's why she can do what she does. Mm. We get lines like um, in Lolly Willows, uh, the bit where Laura realises that she um, and all women are being held down, held back by 
um, and this is a quote, society, the law, the church, the Old Testament, the Bank of England, prostitution and other useful props of civilization. And in a way, it's almost like that line there became a sort of manifesto for, for her subsequent writing, didn't it? She sort of wor- works through all of those uh, institutions in her, her various satires and, uh, of convention, including uh, in the true heart, the, the prostitution part. Yes, indeed. And that's exactly what I meant by her being at a slight angle to the universe. Um, since, you know, her enemies are all the things that um, conservatism says, you know, that they are the props of society as it is. Um, although Lolly, 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 I suppose, mm. is a bit like, or Laura, is a bit like Stephen Dedalus. She sort of flies by those nets rather than directly opposing them. As, as it did for so many other writers um, of the period, the Spanish Civil War uh galvanized her politics didn't it I mean we see this um, in the novel Summer Will Show can you tell us a bit about that one please well it wasn't quite the Spanish Civil War that galvanized her politics I mean Summer Will Show was written before the Spanish Civil War after she had joined the Communist Party what she said was that she would regularly read the Times and she was it was reading the reports of what was happening in the Times they then had a very good correspondent that sort of showed her what was developing in Europe and how dangerous it was. And she she and Valentine joined the Communist Party because they were opposed to that. You talk about the tension between the uh the, the sort of landed gentry in the in the big house and, and everybody else almost. Yes. The heroine, she isn't bourgeois. She's an aristocrat. She's a, she's very much a, a member of the ruling elite. And at the beginning of the novel, she is inclined to despise um, pretty well everybody she comes into contact with, um, the, the, the middle classes and also the, the working classes. And then she's shocked by the loss of her children into various headlong actions, including rushing over to Paris to try initially to try to reclaim the husband who has deserted her um, for his fascinating Jewish mistress. Sophia is somebody who begins apolitical and comes, one could put this very crudely, perhaps this is putting it crudely, she comes through to politics through falling in love with a revolutionary. And I think Francis Bingham is inclined to feel that this is what happened with Sylvia Tanzir Warner, sort of thinks of Valentine as a sort of Shelleyan revolutionary who converted mm. Sylvia. We, we're talking about Valentine Ackland here, who we'll come to in, in much greater detail um, briefly, Sticking with Summer Will Show, um, this novel is also remarkable, and you you touched on it just there. Um, the protagonist goes to Paris to try to get her husband back, uh, to, to to prize him away from his his mistress. Uh, but in fact, things go quite quite differently. The novel is remarkable for for this aspect, for the love story. Uh, you say it became a, a cult gay novel. Um, so when, when was that? And you know, by 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 contrast, presumably, how was it received at the time of publication? <laughs> I think people only saw the politics. I seem to remember uh, one of uh, one of the reviewers being um, who said that uh, Sophia and Millennial quote unquote become great friends. (laughs) (laughs) That is is a way of putting it. (laughs) Well, the reviewer may have been genuinely innocent. I mean, you have um, (laughs) sort of it's a bit coded. Um, in Summer Will Show, there's, you know, there's this, um, the, 
you know, it's very obvious that the two women turn towards each other. And there's some scenes where there's innuendo, which Terry Castle very skillfully points out just by quoting it. And Sylvia says, I will stay if you wish it. Sophia hears herself saying rather grudgingly. Um, and yet something in her consents to that flush of pleasure, that triumphant cry. Then there's a gap in the typescript. But of course, said Miller, licking an oyster shell, we must be practical. <laughs> That's, it's not that coded, though, is it? It's not really, is it? Well, she's taken, she's taken Miller out to dinner, you understand. Oh, OK. She's not just <laughs> hanging around licking an oyster shell in their, in their boudoir. <laughs> no, there's a, there's a gap between Sophia's thoughts and the next bit of dialogue. Um, which in the unit, which in the narrative mm. code means, you know, this is the next scene. Um, and the, the character, the character of Minna is is really quite striking. I mean, it makes for one thing, it makes a nice change to see um, Jewishness celebrated in a novel of this period. Um, it's quite different to the anti-Semitism we've come to expect of many uh, contemporaries. So, um, tell us a bit about Minna. She's an extraordinary character, actually. At once naive and knowing. And at her first meeting with Sophia, she is telling this story. And Sophia is listening. And, and Sophia, who is at this point, has a very sort of ironic ha- um, habit of mind, says, oh, yes, you're a performer. Yes, you're holding us all spellbound. Sort of, aren't you typically Jewish? You will run, rub your hands in the shopkeeper's gesture. And Mida looks at her and sort of parodically rubs her hands as if she knows exactly what Sophia is thinking. Um, although the whole room is spellbound, Minna says to Sophia, it was you I was speaking to, did you not know? And I suppose that's part of the, of the charge of the novel, that for both of them, it's sort of love at first sight. And, and, and Minna, you, you get a, a clear sense of Minna as this incredibly uh, strong kind of driving driving force um, of, of the novel and of her times there, as you say, uh, as a revolutionary. She's not practical. When Sophia throws in her lot with Minna and her side and actually sort of finds herself gun running for the revolutionaries and it's Sophia that they, cho- that they choose to help, not Minna, because she's the one who's, who's good at practical things. Minna is very good at speaking. Um, Sophia is much better at doing. It's the sheer fascination of somebody who comes from an utterly different background, utterly different suppositions, and yet um, the two of them kind of, you know, um, they feel this instant affinity. Religion was uh, a recurring uh, thread in in her work. Um, the corner that held them from 1948, which you describe as her masterpiece, is, is a case in point. So, um, how did she feel when her partner uh, Valentine Ackland converted, or I think reverted, in fact, um, to to Catholicism? She was appalled, um, and she didn't precisely regard it as as reverting because. Um, Valentine had joined the Catholic Church um, because she needed to to marry, um, to go through with her original marriage. And I think she sort of dropped it very soon after the marriage broke down. So Valentine said she had, she reverted to what she had always been. Um, Sylvia didn't, didn't see it that way, but she was appalled. I mean, you're right. Religion runs through her books from the beginning and always as a repressive thought. I mean, that list of things that um, lo- that Laura realises have been um, oppressing her, um, mm-hmm. that includes the church. Um, it's there in um, Mr Fortune's Maggot, when Mr Fortune 
um, absurdly tries to con- convert the islanders to Christianity. And by the end of the book, he decides they're actually better off without it. And there's that scene in The True Heart, isn't there, where the the, the, the spinster defaces the Ten Commandments? Well, he, yes, he, yes, he does. He spins a cobweb across the, te- the Ten Commandments. And yes, there's an um, Anglican vicar who appears in it as an object of satire. Um, the, in after the death of Don Juan, which we haven't talked about, the pious courtiers and their hangers-on, um, they're the worst people in the book. And particularly the villain of the book is the sexton, um, who is a kind of bully with the whole sort of might of the church behind him. Rather paradoxically, Warner also had a certain amused affection for the Anglican church. She very often quotes um, from the Book of Common Prayer, but... Um, I think she actually minded more about Valentine becoming a Roman Catholic than she did about Valentine's sexual infidelities. In the end, Valentine left the Catholic Church because she couldn't be doing with Vatican tomb and the dropping of the Latin mass and so on. Let's focus on on Ackland now then, because um, you also review A Life of Her by Francis Bingham, long-awaited uh, you say. So it, does it deliver on people's hopes for it? Absolutely, it does. I actually think it's benefited by the delay. Um, it's given her that long, that much longer to think things through and ponder them and to make considered judgments, which I think she does very well. And also, of course, um, sort of between when it was originally going to be published by the Women's Press and now, the letters between Valentine and Sylvia and Sylvia and Elizabeth Wade White have been published, and so she had access to those as well. The long delay has been was incredibly frustrating for Frances Bingham, but in that she certainly used that time to make it a very good book. And so, what what image of of, of Ackland do we do emerges from from this book? I mean, from from what I can tell, and from what you um, suggest in your review, she 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 almost single handedly makes a case for Virginia Woolf's. Uh, a room of one's own, doesn't she? <laughs> no, she embodies the case for Virginia Woolf's um, A Room of One's Own. <laughs> this is my interpretation, not Bingham's. I mean, Francis Bingham, I think, wants to um, wants to make a case for Valentine as a major poet. My own feeling is that, that Valentine had a very genuine poetic gift, but that, just as Woolf said in A Room of One's Own, she was terribly disadvantaged by being a woman, because um, she didn't get a decent education mm. and she didn't get a chance to hang out in her late teens, early 20s with other writers who were sort of learning their craft and sort of, sort of building up networks and so on. Um, there she was taking refuge from her family in poetry. You know, this is not the way to learn your craft as a poet. It really isn't. You know, she, she had talent, but um, I don't think she produced that many um, really good finished poems. This is um, what we mean by, um, uh, by mentioning Virginia Woolf, if she had had access to the education for one thing, but also to the society of, 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 of poets, you know, the Auden uh, set, they would have, in a sense, you get the impression that she probably would have been edited more and, and that maybe being edited, I'm thinking of, uh, in particular of, a, of some lines that you quote from, from a poem. I think so. I mean, one of the things I've said, and I don't think that Francis Bingham will like this, what I've said about the collection they uh, published, Whether a Dove or Seagull, that I, you know, I have read it. I've read it more than once and I found it pretty heavy going. Sylvia thought everything Valentine did was wonderful. Or if she did see things criticised, she didn't like to say so. So mm. um, 
No, she didn't. No, she didn't get editing. The other thing about Valentine was she was so insecure. You know, that was the legacy of her sort of very privileged, but actually sort of also very deprived childhood. And the insecurity was very much part of her. So she might well have found editing difficult to take anyway. Um, she, you know, she didn't do badly with what she had. She, she produced a lot of poems, sort of, you know, enough for a collected poems. And some of them were very good. But it's a shame that she didn't, after Whether a Dove or Seagull, she never collaborated with Sylvia again. And I think that's a great shame. It has struck me sometimes that Sylvia's relationship with Valentine was not unlike Winston Auden's relationship with Chester Kalman. That in both cases, you have an immensely gifted writer who is also not particularly good looking, sort of falling in love for life with another writer who is sort of extremely glamorous and is also talented, but not as talented, um, you know, but, but, but is not on the same level. And, the, and in both of them, the kind of the glamorous beloved um, found it very difficult to be sort of to be the handsome one, but also the one who was everybody thought of as the lesser, the lesser writer. But there is one difference, which is that Auden and Calman were never were able to collaborate creatively in their in their librettos, and um, Sylvia and Valentine never did collaborate again after Whether a Dove or Seagull, because. Um, Valentine was so upset by feeling that it had failed. And would you say then that, so Francis Bingham's book, is its greatest value is in, not in, you know, showing us this 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 marvellous talent who has been, you know, too long overlooked. Uh, it, it's more in, 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 in giving us a life in context. I do think that, yes. I mean, she shows, uh, it, it's a wonderful study of a very unusual personality, because Valentine was that. I mean, clearly she was magnetically attractive. I mean, I read with awe of sort of all the women she had affairs with, including right through the war. I mean, there was, she'd sort of had a lowly typing job and she sort of had an affair with somebody in her typing pool, apparently. And sort of, I wouldn't have thought there were so many willing women in rural Dorset, but apparently there were. <laughs> so she was, she was magnetically attractive. She, was, um, she had an acu- a very acute sensibility. But also she was the person that Sylvia loved and she was she was able for Sylvia, which not that many people would have been, actually. So I think, you know, a lot of people could have found Sylvia mm. a bit sort of overpowering, so brilliant and so talented. And, you know, they have they had their mm. ups and downs. They had quite a few downs, but they were um, they were always together. Mm, and they they helped each other. They helped each other. And then, you know, there aren't so many lesbian mid-century writers. Uh, Frances Bingham has, I think, done a great service to our cultural history by sort of giving Valentine her her place in it. Well, we're talking about these two women uh, in tandem would would certainly have pleased Warner and, and it feels true to uh, the, the lives and times that we've been talking about. So, um, Janet Montefiore, thanks very much for talking to us. Oh, you're welcome. is all we have time for this week our thanks go to jeremy minot and janet montefiore thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by sophia franklin we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.